0: And ask that you would pray for me, not just for this message, but today, I, uh, later on in the day, uh, my daughter is going to be renewing her vows. So, as you know, she's married, but she's going to renew her vows. So, dad gets to walk her down the aisle. And then, not only walk her down the aisle, but I get to speak to her and her husband about Christian marriage. So you know me, I'm going to tell it like it is, and as I'll tell them, I'm not speaking to them as their father or father-in-law, but as a minister of the gospel. And then I'm actually going to dance. Can you believe that? Yeah, so I can see where the hearts of many of you are. So I've been praying for you a long time, but... Still got work to do. Okay, God's Word. The title of the message is The Crucifixion of Jesus. And some might think that a message about the cross of Christ is foolishness. In fact, when Paul Writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, he points out to those individuals who are perishing, that the cross, the message of the cross, is foolishness to them. And he even goes on to say that the message that he preaches and the message that others preach, that to the Jews it's a stumbling block. That is the message about the cross. It's a stumbling block. And to those who are Gentiles, it is utter foolishness. So when you preach Christ, and when you preach Christ crucified to unbelievers, that is a message that makes no sense at all. But in that same passage, Paul talks about the message of Christ, the cross of Christ, with regards to believers. And he says to those who are believers, the message of the cross is the power of God. And as Paul goes on in that passage, he says, not only is it the power of God, but it is the wisdom of God. And so when you think about the crucifixion of Jesus, To some, that is utter nonsense and foolishness. Those who don't know Christ, but those who are saved, those who have put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ, when they hear the message of a crucified Christ, they understand that Christ is the power of God and that Christ is the wisdom of God. As we turn to Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 32, you're going to see in this passage how some view the crucifixion of Christ as foolishness, but also in an indirect way, you're going to see how this passage proclaims that the crucifixion of Christ is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God of God. I want us to consider the crucifixion of Jesus from two angles. First of all, please note in verses 21 through 27, the report of Jesus' crucifixion. Mark occupies our mind in these verses with the actions of a particular group. He doesn't call them out by name, He just simply refers to them as they. And in verse 21, they press into service a passerby to cover, to to carry the cross of Christ. And then when you get all the way down to verse 27, we read that they also crucified two men with Christ. The identity of this they was revealed last week. It's the Roman soldiers. You remember, they were the ones who mocked a coronation of Jesus. They mocked a salutation of Jesus. And they mocked a prostration before Jesus. They had a good old time laughing at our Lord Jesus Christ. They had a good old time spitting upon a man, hitting him over the head with a reed. That took place among the Roman soldiers. It was at least 200 of them, and possibly it could have been 600. But from that group, there's a select number of soldiers whose activities are highlighted for us in verses 21 to 27. They do certain things, and in what they're doing, Mark is telling us and reporting to us about the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The report about the crucifixion of Jesus could be divided into two groups, two areas. First, we learn about events that are related to leading up to the crucifixion. And then we learn about events that were a part of the crucifixion. Three activities are attributed to these soldiers that lead up to the crucifixion. First, the soldiers press a passerby into service to carry the cross of Christ. The last verse that we looked at in verse 20 is that after they had mocked Jesus, they let him out to be crucified. As they're leading the Lord out to be crucified, these Roman soldiers, our Lord carries his own cross. I'm not talking about the kind of cross that you typically see today. I mean, it's the right shape, but the Lord was carrying a cross beam the horizontal part of the cross. The vertical part was already at the place of crucifixion. And so as the Lord is going out and being led out to the place of crucifixion, he's carrying this cross on his back, so to speak. It's heavy. Some have estimated that it's 75 pounds to 125 pounds. And evidently, as the Lord is carrying this cross, he becomes too tired, too weak. He doesn't have enough strength to carry it any further. Why is that? Isn't he the Superman? Isn't he the God-man? Yes, he is the God-man. But he was 100% human. And don't forget how they flogged him. How they took leather straps that had bones and metal in it and whipped him repeatedly and tore out the skin on the flesh of his back. And if that were not enough, when they mocked him, There he was wearing a crown of thorns, pressed down on his head. And the soldiers would come by with a reed that they had put in Jesus' hand, and they took that reed, and they would beat him over the head. And don't forget all of the trials that Jesus is experiencing. Through the night, early into the morning, And so here he is attempting to carry the crossbeam in his own strength, and he's unable to do it. The Roman soldiers surely are not going to help him. They're not going to lift one finger on behalf of the one that they've been mocking and laughing at. And so they press into service a passerby. They had the authority to do that as Roman soldiers. They could call upon individuals and assigned them a task. And so here was a passerby coming from the field and his name was Simon. And the place of his origin was Cyrene. Cyrene was in the northern part of Africa. Some have thought maybe this individual was a man of color, I don't think so, but there are men of color in the Bible, particularly you read Acts chapter 13. Simeon called Niger, which means black. He was a man of color. But this Simon was a Jew, and Jews had settled in North Africa, and he's coming in. And as Jesus is going outside of the city, the soldiers see this man and they say to him, it's your responsibility. You are being pressed into service to carry the crossbeam of Jesus. The other thing that we learned about this man, Simon, was that he had two sons, Alexander and Rufus and You might wonder, why would these two sons be mentioned? Most agree that they're mentioned because they were well known to the readers of the Gospel of Mark, the the Roman church. So this implies that these two sons had grown up and become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Their father was the one who carried the cross of Jesus. And Mark kind of as an aside says, this is the father of Alexander and Rufus. You, you know him. You know them. You know these two brothers. They are believers. And so isn't it ironic that here is a man who literally has to carry the cross of Jesus And it seems to imply that eventually he denies himself and picks up his cross and becomes a follower of Jesus to the extent that even his two sons become followers of Jesus Christ. The second event is that the soldiers led Jesus to Golgotha. They brought him to the place, Golgotha. And Mark interprets Golgotha for us because it's an Aramaic term. His readers wouldn't know what it means, and we don't typically know what it means, but it's the place of the skull, place of the skull. And when you look at that term skull, when it's found in the Latin Bible, that Latin word actually becomes our English word called Calvary. You might wonder where the word Calvary comes from. It doesn't come from the hymnal. It comes from this Latin term for skull. And it has come into the English language. And so we sing wonderful songs about Calvary, at Calvary and the importance of Calvary. Well, Jesus is led out to Golgotha, the place of the skull, Calvary. They take him out of the city, to the outskirts of the city. And we're not sure why this place is called Golgotha or the place of the skull, but probably because of how it looked not because there were a bunch of skulls around. Remember, this is Jewish territory. This is Jerusalem, so to speak. And Jews would not let something vile like the skulls of human being to lie around. You could probably, if you went to the Holy Lands, you would find the place of the skull. You would find the place of Calvary. There's a church located that, there. And people who visit the Holy Land are able to go to the actual place where Jesus was led out to. The third event is that the soldiers offered Jesus some wine. This was not a social event. Uh, this was not pure wine. This was wine mixed with myrrh. When you look at the other gospel accounts, it says that it was mixed with that which was bitter and that which was gall. It was basically a narcotic. The wine, that's how it was being used. The, the, the myrrh could have been something that made the wine bitter so that when we see the Lord tasting it, he refuses it, he doesn't want it. But but it was made available so that people might endure the pain of the crucifixion, that they might be able to handle it a little bit better. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe when you had your child, they gave you something for the pain to come. And so these soldiers aren't doing this out of love or out of kindness. They're probably mocking Jesus, You're a king. Let me give you some fine wine to drink. But our Lord's response is no. He did not drink it. He did not take it. As the Lord is getting ready to experience the most horrific event that a person living at that time could experience, as he's going to the cross, having already been flogged, having already been mocked, having already been beaten over the head, he refuses to take any kind of drink that would allow him to endure the pain. He chooses to drink the full wrath of God not aided, not assisted by any drugs for pain at all. He's going to drink the cup that the Father has given to him, the cup of the wrath of his Father. And he's going to drink that cup, not high, not drunk, not sedated, but fully aware with all of his faculties and all of his senses of what he is experiencing. So our Lord would not take this drink. And these are the three events that led up to the crucifixion. Simon pressed into service to carry Jesus' cross. Jesus being led to Golgotha and the soldiers choosing to give Jesus some wine, which he refuses. When we come to verses 24 to 27, we see the events that were a part of the crucifixion. Mark writes, first of all, the first event, they crucified him. That's very brief. That's very concise. That's very to the point. I wish crucifixion was that easy, that simple, that short. But it is interesting that in all of the gospels, none of the gospels choose to go into the agony and the pain of crucifixion. They don't bother to tell us what Jesus was literally experiencing as he's being crucified, so to speak, from a physical point of view. Mark just simply says, they, the soldiers, crucified him. You can't get any simpler statement or summary than that. They crucified him. But for us, we learn about crucifixion outside of the Bible. It didn't start with these Roman soldiers, didn't start with the people of Rome. Crucifixion existed way before then. But by the time of Jesus' day, crucifixion was horrific. Crucifixion was hideous. It was cruel. There was no more miserable way to die. Than crucifixion. Roman citizens couldn't be crucified because it was such an act of torture. Absolutely horrific for a person to be crucified. Mark doesn't tell us but there's two methods of crucifixion. You could be tied to that crossbeam that Jesus started carrying out and that Simon eventually carried to Golgotha. You could be tied to it or you could be nailed to it. And as you know from the Gospel of John, Jesus was nailed to the crossbeam. His hands were nailed to the crossbeam. And his feet were nailed to the vertical beam. Think about the excruciating pain to have nails, not little small nails, but spikes driven through your hands and driven through your feet so that you remain attached to. The cross. And they will lift that individual up and put the cross beam on the vertical beam so that the individual is some two feet higher off the ground. A lot of times when we think about crucifixion, we just think about death. We think if a person's crucified, they die immediately. But that is not the reality. Even in the case of Jesus, he's on the cross at least six hours. But in other cases, a person could be on the cross for days. On that cross, that vertical beam, they sometimes had a seat that you could, quote, sit in to try to get some relief. Sometimes they had a footstool on that vertical beam that you could stand up and try to hold yourself up so you're not collapsing and suffocating. But our Lord is on the cross. He's been nailed to the cross. And he's experiencing the worst kind of death anyone could experience. And as people hung on the cross. They were subject to the elements, the wind, the rain, the sun. They were subject to birds and animals coming, trying to feast off of the body on the cross. Mark just simply says they crucified him but bottled up and contained in that word crucified are the things that I've been mentioning. The second event that's closely tied to the crucifixion is the dividing of garments. The soldiers divided Jesus' garment. And that really was a fulfillment of Scripture. Remember that Jesus was flogged. That means they probably stripped him put his clothes back on. He was mocked. They put clothes off him, put on a purple robe. They put that off and put on his clothes. So as he comes to the cross, he's got garments. And it's said that to really bring shame to the individual being crucified, that those on the cross sometimes were crucified naked with no clothes at all. Jesus might have had a loincloth to cover him, but basically naked. The garments that he has, one is divided into four pieces and given to four soldiers. The other one is a, something they don't want to tear up, so they gamble for it. They roll the dice to see who would get it. And in doing it, they fulfilled Psalm twenty-two eighteen. 18 that says they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The third event just simply tells us the time of the crucifixion. We are told that he was crucified at the third hour, which means 9 a.m. in the morning. 9 a.m. in the morning, he's on the cross. A little bit later, Mark would tell us at 12 noon, everything turns black. And then at 3 p.m., he talks about how Jesus died. So there he is on the cross, hanging, bleeding, suffocating. Just a reminder, Mark says, that it was at 9 a.m. John says it was the sixth hour opposed to the third hour. And that does create a little bit of a problem, but it could be that John is using a different time schedule, starting at midnight. And so that would be 6 a.m., and that would be prior to the 9 a.m. But regardless the Lord was crucified at 9 a.m. When he was crucified, they had an inscription that they put above his head and on the cross. It was the accusation, the charge that came and that was brought against Jesus. It was what he was guilty of. And we read about this inscription, the charge, in verse 26, it says the charge was king of the Jews. All of the gospel writers mention this inscription, this writing on some kind of tablet that testified to the crime of the individual, the crime of Jesus, according to Mark, the king of the Jews. According to Matthew, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. According to Luke, this is king of the Jews. According to John, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. All of them testify in one way or the other that the charge that Jesus is guilty of is that he is the king of the Jews, even though those words never ever came out of his mouth. But that was the accusation. And that's what Pilate found him guilty of and allowed him to be handed over to soldiers to be crucified. One other event is that the soldiers crucified two criminals with Jesus. According to verse 27. They crucified two robbers, two criminals, probably two insurrectionists, those who did an insurrection against Roman government. These were probably friends of Barabbas. Remember Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the one that the people had a choice, do you want me, uh, Pilate says, to release Barabbas to you, or do you want me to release Jesus? And they said, Barabbas. And he was released. He did not get crucified. But his two buddies did. His two companions did. They get crucified along with Jesus. Jesus is in the middle. And on both sides of him are criminals. What irony. That Jesus is being crucified as one who has done a criminal act. They crucified these two criminals on either side of Jesus because the reality is it was all about Jesus. He's the center of attention. He's the one that the focus is on. So that's the report of Jesus' crucifixion. These actions of the soldiers marches through to what happens to Jesus. But when we come to verses 29 through 32, we have the response to Jesus' crucifixion. As he's hanging on the cross, different groups respond to him. Now, you'll notice that I did not read verse 28, did not mention it in our sermon. When we read the responsive reading, it was not there either. We read from verse 27 to verse 29. And according to our best manuscripts, verse 28 was something that was added later. And so after we learn about the soldiers crucifying the two criminals, the next thing that we learn is that there are different individuals, different groups, who encountered the crucified Jesus on the cross. And each of these groups one way or the other, is involved in mocking Jesus Christ. They're involved in making fun of him, laughing at him, sneering at him. They do it in their own way, but each one is actually mocking Jesus. The first response was abuse by those passing by. Crucifixions done by Romans were not done in secret, not done in some isolated place. They were done out in the open so that people could see the crucified individuals, so that that might deter them from committing crimes and that it might warn them of, if you do commit crime, this is what is going to happen to you. And so it's not shocking that there are passerbys where Jesus has been crucified. The place of the skull, Golgotha. These passerbys, no doubt, are Jews. And they observe the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And what do they do? they were hurling abuse at Jesus. As Jesus is being tortured on the cross, they are literally blaspheming him. Something that is technically only what you can do to God, they are doing to Jesus. They are slandering him. They are cutting him down with words. They are shaming him and hurling offensive and abusive words to the Lord Jesus Christ. And while they're doing that, they're wagging their heads, going side to side, side to side. They abused him with their heads, so to speak. They abused him with words. The first thing that came out of their mouth is, Ha! Aha! So! And they're mocking him. You're the king of the Jews? Ha! 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 I like the way one translation put it. Oh me. Oh my. That, that was their hard attitude as they saw Jesus on the cross hanging. Oh me. Oh my. And then they go on to say you uh, who destroy who who will destroy the temple and rebuild it in 3 days. You, we remember you. We remember all the way back at the beginning of your ministry where you said that you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in 3 days. John chapter 2 talks about it. They got it wrong because Jesus was not talking about the physical temple, but he was talking about the temple of his body. And he was telling him, you destroy my body, and in three days I will raise it again. And that's exactly what happens on Resurrection Sunday. They crucify him on Friday, but on Resurrection Sunday he rises from the dead. But they got it wrong. They got it wrong. And they're mocking him, they're laughing at him. You're big time, you, you, you're going to destroy the temple, <laughs> and you're, then you're going to rebuild it in three days, this magnificent temple that has existed, and you're going to destroy it and rebuild it. And then they go on to issue a command to Jesus. Save yourself. Save yourself. And come down from the cross. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. Thank God Jesus didn't obey the command. Thank God he didn't save himself. Thank God that he did not come down from the cross. The second response was mockery by the religious leaders. It should not shock us to see religious leaders, the chief priests, the leading priests, the scribes, and Matthew tells us that the elders are there. They've hated Jesus from day one. As we march through Mark, that's what we read over and over again about the opposition, the hatred of Jesus by the religious leader, the people who should have embraced him, the people who should have welcomed him, they hated him. And as early as Mark 3, when Jesus heals the, the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, they get upset and mad about that. They leave the synagogue and they plot with the Herodian, the Pharisees and the Herodian, strange bedfellows. But what are they plotting to do? They're plotting to put him to death. That was Mark chapter 3. And it happens over and over and over again. When he drove the charlatans and the abusers of the temple out of that temple, they were waiting for the right opportunity to get him, to destroy him. And now here they are. Here's Jesus on the cross. They got him. They finally have gotten him. And their mockery is not directed toward Jesus. They don't say anything to Jesus. They're talking to each other. They're talking among themselves. Of course, what they're saying, the Lord can hear. But they're not saying, oh, you. No, instead... They were saying to each other, (laughs) he, he, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Isn't that funny? Here's a man that healed people, raised people from the dead. They didn't believe any of that. They said he did it by the power of the devil. But, but, but they will test it. He, 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 he saved others physically, but he can't save himself. He's powerless. He's weak. He's puny. He can't do anything. Look at him. But they're saying this to each other. He saved others, but he can't save himself. And then they went on to say, let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. They refer to Jesus as Christ, Messiah. Remember, that's the whole goal of Mark's gospel. It's the gospel of the beginning of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God but they're not truly acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. They're doing this mockingly. Here he is on the cross. Look at him. And they're not really looking at him. They're talking to each other and saying, he says he's the Christ. Says he's the king of the Jews. But he can't do a thing. He's powerless. And they say, come down from the cross. Why do they want him to come down from the cross? It's amazing. They say, come down from the cross in order that we may see, that is, see it with our eyes and believe. They're trying to act like if Jesus came down from the cross and they saw it with their eyes that they would believe in him. But, but the scripture is clear. They've had many opportunities to see Jesus. They had many opportunities to see him heal and cast out demons and proclaim the words of life. And they never responded. In fact, it got so bad that when they asked for a sign, Jesus said to Mark 8, no sign for the blind. You're not getting a sign. And they're saying, come down to himself. Let him come down. Let's see if he comes down so that we can see and believe in him. You would think that's enough mockery. The passerbys throwing verbal abuse at him, the religious leaders taunting him and mocking him. But believe it or not, there's a third group. (coughs) At the end of verse 32, The third response was insult by those who were crucified with Jesus. The criminals have the audacity to insult and throw verbal abuse at Jesus and mock him. As if they're somehow innocent. They're on the cross because they deserve it. They have killed. They are part of an insurrection. And that was the penalty for the crime, crucifixion. But they are in their hardened state. There, as they're listening to the taunts and the verbal abuse of those passing by, as they're listening to the religious leaders, they join in. They're basically saying the same thing. And Mark just simply says that they we're casting the same insult at him. Mark, for some reason, doesn't tell us a very important detail. Matthew doesn't tell us. John doesn't tell us. But Luke in his gospel, Luke chapter 23, lets us know that one of these criminals... that God intervened in that criminal's life and changed his life. Somehow, some way, God was gracious to him. And on that cross, the criminal says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come in your kingdom and you look and read that whole story, he he recognized that he's on the cross because he has sinned. And he recognized that Jesus has not sinned. God opened his eyes, amazingly, on the cross. And this individual says, Jesus, remember me, and our Lord. Even as he's being crucified, even as he's bleeding and suffocating, in dying, says to this criminal, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, you don't get better words than that. You're on your deathbed. And you're conscious of what's going on. And you recognize how you have lived a life of sin, that you deserve crucifixion. But you cry out not to be taken off the cross, but you cry out that Jesus would remember you when he comes into his kingdom. He's talking about some future time. Jesus says today, right now, you'll be with me in paradise. Isn't it amazing? Amazing. How the 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 grace of God shines in the most unlikely places. Two criminals insulting Jesus, joining the crowd. One of them eventually comes to saving faith. God opens his eyes. And he puts his faith and his trust in Jesus. Showing. And I don't recommend this, but showing that even if you lived your whole life in sin, there's enough patience and mercy from God for you to become a believer in Christ. I don't recommend that. Scripture says today is a day of salvation. Don't put it off. Don't, don't wait till you're on your deathbed because you might not get to experience the grace of God. And so, as we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, we see the foolishness of the crucifixion from man's point of view, the unbeliever's point of view, but we also see the power of God, the wisdom of God revealed in this passage. Foolishness to press a man into service To literally carry the cross of Jesus. That doesn't do anything. But the power of God, the wisdom of God, shows how this man became a believer and his two sons became believers and well known to the church at Rome. The inscription says, The King of the Jews. And all of those who uttered that and all of those who accused Jesus of that looked at Jesus and said, foolishness. He's not the king of the Jews. But the power of God, the mystery of God, the wisdom of God, says indeed he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the king of the Jews, he's the king of Israel, and he's the king of all. The wisdom of God. Foolishness says, Jesus, save yourself and come down from the cross. God's power, God's wisdom say, no, stay on the cross. That's how people can be saved. That's how you and I can have salvation. It's only by him staying on the cross. Thank God he didn't have his son save himself. And he was more than capable to do it. He had the power. Foolishness says he saved others. He cannot save himself. Oh, the power of God, the wisdom of God says... He's going to save a lot of people. Through his crucifixion, through his death, burial, resurrection, the wisdom and power of God will be displayed. People, because of a crucified Christ, will be able to have their sins forgiven. Foolishness says come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. God says believe in the crucified Christ on the basis of the revelation that you've been given in his word. You're not going to get some special sign in order to become a Christian. He's not going to do some miracle from heaven for you in order for you to be saved. He's not going to let One of your loved ones rise from the dead who died in their sins to come to you and tell you, you don't want to come to this place that I'm in. He's given you the revelation. He's given you the truth that you may see and believe. And so you must respond and repent of your sins. The foolishness of the crucifixion. But from God's point of view, his power in his wisdom. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the crucifixion of Christ. Thank you that we preach a crucified Christ, one who was nailed to the cross, one who was tortured, one who stayed on the cross, until he died. One who eventually was buried and raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven. Father, I pray that if this message is foolishness to anyone in our midst, that you might remove the blinders from their eyes and that you might grant them grace just like you did that criminal on the cross. So that they can see that they're a sinner, that they're in need of a savior, and that Jesus Christ can forgive them from their sins if they repent and believe in him. Father, thank you for our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have the privilege to go everywhere to preach Christ, the power of you and the wisdom of you. Thank you so much for giving us another glimpse into the life of our Savior. Another piece of evidence of how he loves us and wants us to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. To those who think this message is foolishness, Lord, Open their eyes. But to those of us who see this message as the power of God and the wisdom of God, help us to treasure the crucified Christ, the buried Christ, the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, the soon coming Christ. Help us to live our lives for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.